You're listening to a podcast from the Royal Irish Academy. In this episode, Building Vibrant and Sustainable Communities in Rural Ireland, the third of three events in the Rural Conversations series. This roundtable feedback event was hosted in Waterford Institute of Technology on the 4th of April, 2019. The purpose of this Rural Conversation was to consider what policy measures are required to support vibrant, resilient and sustainable communities in rural Ireland into the future, particularly in the context of emerging social, economic and environmental challenges. The event was introduced by Pauline McNamara, Programme Manager for Humanities and Social Sciences at the Royal Irish Academy. Good morning everybody, my name is Pauline McNamara and I've come down from the Royal Irish Academy for this, our third Rural Conversation in a series of three. I'd like to thank WIT for hosting us today and the other institutions around the country who hosted the other events and that was NUIG and DKIT. I'd also like to thank our collaborators on this project, which is the Department of Rural and Community Development. So to start today, um, the President of WIT, Professor Willie Donnelly, will speak to you now. Professor Highland, uh, William Parnell, esteemed uh, guests, friends, I'm delighted to welcome you today to Waterford Institute of Technology. When I read about this, this group, I was really say, excited by it because I think it really is addressing one of the key challenges, not only for Ireland, but for the world. Um, and I also like, by the way, the fact that you talk about a conversation, because I think first we need a conversation before we can develop policies, before we decide how we're going to move forward. You know, globally, there is a move to urbanization, and by 2050, 60% of the world's population will live in cities. And it's not simply, I mean, that creates, and we've seen it in Dublin in particular, the huge pressure that this uh, migration and increase in population of urban areas and cities uh, uh, create for a country and then the depopulation of the uh, of, of the rural areas has an impact as well and you know when I grew up in Ireland nearly everybody had that connectivity to the country uh, so there were one generation away from somebody who had grew up in the country and now we have generations, we have people who are maybe two or three generations away. And there's a danger in that, that the country is seen as a team park rather than a living uh, community. And, you know, we, or even worse, and you can see it if you go to uh, Dublin in the morning, that the pressures on accommodation in Dublin means people are moving out of Dublin and then our towns are becoming sleeper towns and losing their identity. And we need to find ways to overcome that. So these conversations and this move forward, uh, I mean, in this, this kind of uh, uh, focus on rural uh, uh, development and the challenges of rural development uh, is, is important and timely. And as I say, it's, it can't be, that conversation can't happen external to the development of our urban areas because they're intrinsically interconnected. What I would say though is that the nature of urban development and the way we think of communities can be transformed by things that are happening particularly 
in technology. And I know we in Ireland are still in a conversation of broad, broadband and the, how do we get broadband out. But the reality is that the digital uh, uh, world that uh, is driving the new society has huge opportunities for connecting and reconnecting in a, in a very different way our urban communities. It also will transform the working environment. So many people now are working from home and that's an opportunity as well. So what I would say is that, you know, when your conversation, it might be useful to, to, to really think ahead into, you know, how society is changing and how disruptive technologies and disruptive thinking Another area is social innovation, for instance, is an area that's transforming uh, the way people think of urban communities as well. So I hope you have a great day. As I say, it is an, an exciting area. It's a hugely important area for, for Ireland. So I just wish you the best in your discussions for the day. I would now like to introduce somebody who has been, I suppose, in a, a great a uh, friend of this institute and uh, whose name is well known to everybody in the whole area of education, and that's Professor Anya Highland. Thank you. Thank you very much, President. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me and an honour to be here today. I'm here on behalf of the Royal Irish Academy, which is delighted to be co-hosting these rural conversations. And we're very grateful, as, uh, as Pauline has said, to Willie and to uh, the WIT for providing the venue and hosting us here today. We're particularly grateful to Felicity, Felicity Kelleher, who has, whose idea the rural conversations were. <clears throat> uh, Felicity is a member of the Social Sciences Committee of the Royal Irish Academy, which I chair. And um, she came up with this idea, and this is the third of the rural conversations. <clears throat> the first one was in Galway, the second one was in DKIT in Dundalk, and now we're here in Waterford today. And uh, Felicity will say more about what the purpose of today is. But basically, as I say, building vibrant and sustainable communities in rural Ireland is a very, really very important. I mean, we are more ruralized in Ireland than is generally the case across Europe. Uh, in our more recent um, census, we saw that well over 50% of Irish people live in rural communities, as opposed to about 25% across the EU generally. So we are still, even though we are increasingly being urbanized, we are nevertheless more a, a rural community than we are generally than we are urban communities. So that, I mean, I think that's important. And as Willie has said, the challenge ahead for us is to uh, ensure that rural communities are sustainable and that they're vibrant and that, as they are in so many parts of Ireland, great places to live. I mean, the quality of life for young people growing up uh, especially for children and indeed for the older people living there is, is second to none and any of us who have uh, had to endure the commutes in the, Dublin, the greater Dublin area or in Cork would be aware of 
the pleasures, if you like, of living in rural communities. Now, obviously, there are challenges as well. One of the things that has struck me, this is an aside, but it's something my generation, I don't know if there's anybody else in the room who remembers that when I was growing up on the Cavan Mead border area, some of my extended family, my, my uncle was a farmer, and as you, were, as you were saying, Willie, most of us had direct contacts back to the to the farming community. But there was country time and town time. We're talking now getting very worried that Brexit might mean that Northern Ireland will be on a different time zone to the rest of Europe. But I grew up in a situation where on a Sunday, the priest would have to say, there's 11 o'clock mass in this parish. That's country time. But in Kells, it'll be 11 o'clock town time. And I always remember, I don't know if, any, if that was true all over the country or not, it, it may have been just a local one, but we always had that. The farmers didn't change their time because they kept milking the cows at the same time all year round. They didn't change the clocks at all, but the town people did to come into line with Dublin, I suppose. So, as I say, we were a strong rural uh, community in those days where we could make our own rules. So I wish... Uh, you every success today. I know it's going to be exciting and interesting and some of us will walk around and sit with different tables just to hear what's being said and we look forward to a very enjoyable and uh, a day that will help um, my, the next speaker, William Parnell, who's the Assistant Secretary General in the Department of Rural Development uh, and uh, he will hear what, and he's been great because he's been at all the conversations listening to what the people are saying and therefore policy can be informed by the views of the people. So thank you very much and we're looking forward to a great day. Thank you. Uh, so thanks very much, Anya. And uh, can I just add my, my thanks to Willie for inviting us here to WIT and indeed to Pauline and Felicity for all the, the detailed work that goes on in putting on these, these events. Um, as Anya has said, I'm uh, the Assistant Secretary General in the Department of Rural and Community Development with responsibility for rural development and regional affairs. And when the RIA came to us around last summer and explained to us that they were thinking of organising a series of events called Rural Conversations, um, we jumped at the opportunity to be associated with it uh, because I think these events are really important and will be really important in helping to inform the next phase of Ireland's rural development policy. Um, as Anya has said, there have been three events in this series and this is the third in the series of events and each of the events has explored different issues that impact on rural Ireland. So the first event uh, focused on rural economies. The second one focused on social cohesion in rural areas. And now today we're, we're looking at the issue of building vibrant and sustainable rural communities. Now, all three of the, those themes, I think, are interrelated. So strong economies, strong rural economies will help to build social cohesion and will help to keep communities intact. And we know how, how rural communities in the past have been hit very hard by uh, depopulation. 
but if you have a good, strong economy, it will help to, to sustain those communities. And then leading into building those uh, vibrant and sustainable communities into the future. So all three are, are, are interrelated. And we've had great inputs from the previous events that we've held. And I've no doubt that we'll get some really good inputs today. Even, even outside, just in the foyer, the, the, the vibrancy, um, the energy was, was palpable. And, and I've no doubt that we're going to get some really great inputs today. And Felicity will guide us in a few moments uh, as to what it is we're asking you to do and how you can help us with your ideas and your inputs. And those inputs will feed into the next phase of Ireland's rural development policy from 2020. So at the moment, um, the government's action plan for rural development, uh, which was launched at the beginning of 2017, runs to the end of this year, 2019. Um, so again, when, when the RIA approached us, it was very, very timely uh, that these events were being were being planned because they will have a real and tangible uh, input into our next phase of policy. Um, at the beginning of, of last year, the government published uh, its long-term strategy for Ireland, um, Project Ireland 2040. And one of the key objectives of Project Ireland 2040 is to build stronger rural economies and communities. Um, and over the, the, the coming period, I think that we're, we're facing into what is really an unprecedented era of change. Willie mentioned some of those issues, uh, um, like the, the new ways of working through automation. Uh, we also have climate change uh, issues coming down the track that will undoubtedly change the way we live and the way we work and indeed the way we, we move around the country. Brexit, of course, is, is still an unknown, but what we do know is it is going to have an impact on the country and it's going to have an impact um, on rural areas and some would say it may have a disproportionate impact on rural areas. So the important thing is that we develop our policies so that rural communities can adapt to those changes and indeed that they can avail of the opportunities that can arise. And, and Willie mentioned you know, that change does bring about opportunities. So it's important that we help communities to adapt to those changes, to, to uh, grasp the opportunities that might arise and develop good policies and practices. And that's why today and indeed the other two events we've held are very much looking to the future. It's not so much about dwelling on where we are, but it's about building um, a rural uh, economy and a rural society that's fit for, for purpose in the, the, the next phase of, of our country's development. Um, and it's, it's really important that we do that, that we maintain all of the, the strands that make rural Ireland so special. Um, and rural Ireland, you know, it's not isolated. It makes a huge contribution to our national economy. It makes a huge contribution to our sense of place and to the people that we are. Uh, and, and both of the two, two previous speakers spoke about how close we are really to, uh, to our rural roots. 
Um, so there are many people in the room here today that have a great level of experience, great knowledge and a great insight into rural issues. Some of you or your organisations have attended all three events and we really appreciate that, that all of you have given your time to be here today. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, the, 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 the conversation here, the dialogue and the inputs uh, that, that you'll be able to feed back to us as a group at the end of, of the session. So without further ado, I think I'll hand over to Felicity and we'll get the conversation going. So this is very brief because what we what we'd really like to do is to get your perspective. So it is really just to set the scene as to what we're asking from you today. We very much appreciate your involvement and the contributions that you can make in terms of informing policy for the future. When we're looking at building vibrant and sustainable communities in rural Ireland, we're really looking at that criteria of what we are as a country and in context where we have, as Anya was pointing out, one of the highest proportions of people living in rural areas among the whole of the EU states. Some 42% of us live in rural Ireland compared to an EU average of just 27%. So it gives us a real sense of who is in the country and who's living where. It's also by 2040, and William has spoken about this as well, but by 2040, we're going to have roughly an extra 1 million people living in our country. And really what we're asking for today is contributions as to not just how rural Ireland can contribute to that expanded population, but how we can ensure that it grows in a way that allows the entirety of the country to be sustainable. It affects everything from housing to transport, you mentioned commuting, in the context of the previous speakers. So it is your perspectives on how we can engage fully as a totality of a community, both urban and rural dwellers, in terms of contributing to the sustainable and vibrant community as a nation as well. In terms of pulling from the past to give to the future, the realising our rural potential uh, criteria in terms of the action plan for rural development had five pillars. The five pillars were to support sustainable communities, support enterprise and employment, maximize our rural tourism and recreation potential, foster culture and creativity in rural communities, and improve rural infrastructure and connectivity. Hopefully it will make sense why the people at your table are here, because we really were very keen to ensure that everyone in the room was from each of these criteria so that there's a real opportunity to get a fully engaged conversation going. I think it's interesting as well in terms of the action plan for rural development, some of the key deliverables there to support 135,000 new jobs by 2020, to increase um, the uh, criteria of industry by 12%, invest more than 50 million in sports, recreation and cultural activities, and the other details are available. We will, we will distribute these um, uh, slide deck to anyone who wishes to use it. There's also the Rural Development Programme for Ireland for 2014 to 2020. And in that Rural Development Programme is restoring and preserving and enhancing the ecosystems related to agriculture and forestry. I'm from an agri background myself, so I just wanted to make sure that you knew you're really important as well. <laughs> Um, so really the central focus of this report, and we're leveraging off this in the room today, is knowledge transfer and innovation, competitiveness, 
food chain organization, restoring, preserving and enhancing ecosystems, resource efficiency and climate, and social inclusion and local development in rural areas, often facilitated in the context of the LEADER programme. So, we're here today. I think it would be a mistake not to acknowledge some of the challenges that we face currently and in the near future. Brexit. Broadband is enhanced over the last years, but there is still some way to go in terms of high-speed broadband for all and the impact that has on some of what both William and Willie were speaking of in terms of remote working and the facilitation of working in rural Ireland. It is often spoken about the closure of post office, but really what I mean there is community engagement and the enhancement of community spaces that allow us to engage with each other on a regular basis and not always for economic reasons. And the idea of particularly youth movement from rural to urban places, the concept of development of housing. So uh, one of the programmes in particular is the uh, refurbishment of derelict houses throughout rural Ireland. And in context, there is also the concept of where are we going to put that extra one million people by 2040? And we won't talk about the roads. I'm from Kerry, so we have something like this near my house. <laughs> but there has been significant progress, and it would be a mistake to look at challenges without looking at the road already travelled. The Regional Action Plan for Jobs has achieved and exceeded the goals set out in the Rural uh, Generation Plan. So employment outside of the Dublin region has increased by 146,000 people, which exceeds the plan to 2020, and we're only in 2019. The 2017 Town and Village Renewal Scheme has 505 projects in situ, supported by October 18. The Small Capital Projects for Disadvantaged Rural Communities has 231 projects funded by the end of last year. I'm really highlighting these because maybe not everyone in the room knows of all of these programmes and projects, and they can give us an opportunity to leverage off what's already there in terms of future ideas while we're here this morning. Social Inclusion and Community Activation Programme was commenced at the start of 2018. 1,300 projects have been approved under the LEADER programme. Community Facilities Fund have contributed 3.7 million for volunteer centres and information services. Competitive Regional Environmental Development Fund has 60 million in its budget. In terms of infrastructure and connectivity, and Willie spoke to this uh, earlier, a digital skills training programme is in place, and that's part of what we're doing in relation to the Institute of Technology sector, is to ensure that we're contributing in a very practical way to the development mm -hmm. and evolution of our rural communities that surround all of our institutes. The Blue Way and Greenway initiatives, and in context, the Waterford Greenway, which is nearby, and it is a lovely day if you have a decent coat, um, so please do have a look after. But that had 250,000 visitors in year one of its operation. And the Regional Skills Fora is there to enhance higher education and employee relationships. And lastly, the Hidden Heartlands programme uh, contributes to culture and tourism. 
This list is by no means definitive. It is more triggers that might encourage the thinking process of what else can we do or how can we embed some of these really successful programmes to ensure that they don't lose motivation as we move into the future. So what is that future? I mentioned the expectation of us having 5.6 million people in the country by 2040. In terms of what that means to housing, there'll be an expectation of another half a million houses need to be built by 2040. We'll be educating 400,000 post-primary students. Employment is expected to raise by 25%. And commuter towns, most of the built-up areas in the 11 counties in the east of the country have effectively become commuter towns which reinforces the value of vibrant and sustainable rural communities in terms of alleviating the pressure on that urban sprawl. In context, I'd like to particularly welcome today, although you're all welcome, I'd like to particularly welcome today some of our students. These students are rural dwellers and many of them are studying in the rural areas and I'm delighted to have them here so that they can contribute to this, their future. As I was saying to a few of them outside, by the time 2040 rolls around, you'll be my age. So in context, the goal is to link 10-year investment plan, the 2018-27, and the Project Ireland 2040 project to what we're trying to achieve today in terms of informing and contributing to policy in relation to rural and community development in our country. These are the strategic outcomes and priorities of the National Development Plan. But of particular relevance is the top two for us today. Enhanced regional accessibility and strengthened rural economies and communities. In order to achieve that, these are the ultimate objectives of the National Development Programme. And in order to achieve that, we're really thinking about the fact that while 25% of uh, growth is planned for Dublin, 25% is across the other four cities combined, including Waterford. And it is anticipated that the growth in those four cities is going to be twice the growth of the previous 25 years into 2016. Of particular relevance to us today is the remaining 50% of growth is to occur in regional centres, towns, villages and rural areas. So an aspect of what we're asking from you is to think about how do we plan for that kind of growth in our rural communities and yet retain the heart of the community in terms of its vibrancy. There's also the Regenerate Rural Ireland plan and in that objective it is to promote environmentally sustainable growth patterns. Again, I look to my colleagues in the sectors, including agriculture and marine, in terms of informing others as to the environmental sustainability growth patterns that can be achieved if we put our heads together, equally so with tourism. So without further ado, if I could move to question one, which is what are the characteristics of vibrant and sustainable communities in rural Ireland? We'll start with table one, please. So some of the, we began with kind of trying to paint a picture of what we felt um, a vibrant and sustainable community was. Um, some of the key characteristics we thought were a social network um, that includes and is supported by leaders in the community and also by infrastructure for that social network. Um, also an economic network um, that supports businesses to interact with each other and also infrastructure to again support that economic network. 
but an important issue was that the community have a vision and path for their own community um, and projects kind of the funding comes underneath that. Also pride um, we thought kind of led a lot to the vibrancy of a community so pride in their own community. Um, an example of this would be town and village renewal. Um, so that also came down then to a visual representation of the community, um, an appealing community um, that can be vibrant to its members. Um, you know, not um, closed shop fronts, empty buildings. Um, so something that was actually visually appealing can appear to be vibrant. And also activity then within the community. So um, be it from the economic network or the social network. Yeah, I think that kind of was some of our main points. <laughs> Great, thank you. If we could move to table two, please. Well, we certainly had a vibrant discussion at this table, for sure. Um, and there was some great, great conversation. I need to say at the beginning that there was a strong bias for community and voluntary at this table. So I was asked uh, to say that. And I guess uh, we had um, a background context about you know, knowing your neighbour as a good start point and... Uh, why people now don't no longer know their next-door neighbour. And it's very difficult to have uh, um, a, a vibrant community if people actually don't even know who they are. There was a, the other point, they were making a lot of empty houses due to the lack of um, local employment and the idea that um, people had to travel long distances to go to employment, which we know. But one of the, the, the points that were raised there on that was uh, the bringing in of hubs. Um, I think it was in Lismore, the point was made that about a thousand people from around that area travel to Cork every day to work. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's no reason um, with technology now that you can't actually work remotely. So the, the, the um, possible solutions on that certainly was to have hubs that had all of the connectivities required. That, that meant that the local people are working in while they're working for different companies, but of course they're in the hub and they're chatting to each other. And if you include some of the other areas around that, which was, uh, you know, childcare and, and so on, mm -hmm. it would spread out into the community because they're making connections at that mm -hmm. one. And they were, and I certainly can speak of that because I, I work in a similar one in Wexford. Um, the, uh, I think that was the, yeah, the, 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 the education piece was, a, was a, another point made. Um, we're, we're bringing all our young people to set way out of their communities to educate them. And uh, we had a, a you know, debate on that is young people might like to go and have the, the, the experience and be away from home. But I guess the points were made there. Do we need to bring them away to live there for, you know, all of the time when actually they could do the same hub thing from home because everything is available on, on a technical basis anyway. And they would still be part of the, um, the vibrant community because they'll be part of the teams. And I guess the, the point being made, which is it, it, they would have a sense of place as to, to where they come from and their connections. The other point, I guess, was around the real need to have a community centre and a community space. And to be able to um, identify the leaders in the community who perhaps are retired and living there and engage them in pulling that uh, community centre together. Because everybody, you know, we all know there can be a community centre, the facilities can be wonderful, but there's nobody, if there's nobody actively drawing things to happen there. And, uh, you know, how do, we, how do we identify those people? And everybody knew someone that they would. So there was uh, a whole piece. And I guess the other part was 
the need for a mixed economy. You know, mm. that if you're um, looking at the, the rural Ireland as just agricultural, it's, it's, uh, it's not gone because the, the points were so well made here that those farms are getting bigger and bigger and there's less people needed. So actually you're wiping the, the policies around that, you're wiping local com rural communities out. Um, which actually was a very good point because I hadn't, I hadn't quite thought that one through, but and, and mm -hmm. the, there was very good background here. I suppose the other point was, um, uh, are we, are, is there too strong a, an encouragement and elitism maybe and whatever on going to universities to do academic courses and the professions and all of that? What about the trades? Because they're actually the people who can stay in their communities where, you know, everybody is going to need them and are likely to build their homes there and engage in sporting activities and keep young people at home. Um, and I, 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 there was points made about, you know, rural communities need to be able to support the, the cycle of life from birth and childhood and so on. Um, and now we know there are arguments to get that, but the schools need to be there you know, the goddess stations, the banks, the, the post offices and all of that, which we know are moving out. But in the absence of that, the, the question was, how do we engage the, to keep that vibrancy and together based on what we've said already? There were, there were lots of other points that I furiously kept people through them and said, please write them up there because we didn't want to miss them. Yeah, we had a really great discussion around here, um, right from the get-go. And... Um, the belief was that communities are built around a, a number of things. Um, some of it was work and working, getting work done uh, traditionally, but that it, it can be built around working and activities um, and co-working uh, going forward. Um, and it said that whatever, we're trying to look at descriptors of, of communities um, and what, what are the characteristics of, 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 of vibrant, sustainable communities. And people just have to be at the heart of it um, uh, from a community perspective, whether that's from a family perspective or just the interdependency of living in a community. Um, it's not a community unless there's interaction and, and some levels of interdependency. And that there's been a shift and that it's, that interdependency has been facilitated by infrastructure in the past. Uh, and the infrastructure has been around um, focal points like going to mass um, going to the pub um, and that people interact there and they caught up on information and news tr through that. And so it's kind of f finding ways to replace those infrastructural locations um, within, within uh, communities. And that um, there are a number of really important infrastructural um, focal points. So there are schools, community halls, um, pitches, uh, and sporting activities. Um, so there was a belief that, uh, kind of in summary, that, that uh, communities were um, about act working activities or, and, acti uh, and activities in general, uh, be they sporting or um, um, just other community interactions or training or activities. And we talked about things like this, this road bowling goes on in County Waterford as a sporting activity. And this surfing has literally replaced religion in, in, in Tremor on a Saturday morning. Coffee has replaced the pub. So how do we kind of latch on to some of these new activities as things to do uh, for, for communities to get involved in? Um, but, but, but we talked a lot then about the, the importance of just connecting, using technology or just connecting people. It was, um, you need people 
you need to use the experience uh, of, of the intergener intergenerational experience within communities because there was a belief that communities worked quite well up to as recently as 20, 25 years ago, and people can remember when they did. So what has changed since then, and what, and what can we extract from that to, 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 um, to make communities work again? Uh, and it was so there was belief that using the intergenerational um, experience and the diversity there and bringing in more diversity, so you know, maybe getting people to move from, from urban locations. Um, connectivity was really important, and so was transport. So you have to be able to move within a community to make a community work. And we discussed some international um, examples of that as well. So we just felt that, that today rural communities are actually ghost communities during the day and, and then function again as communities uh, in, in, the, in the evening time. Um, so for that reason, creating more working opportunities within uh, communities would reverse that. And, and, and so, so there's the vibrancy is there uh, during working hours and outside working hours. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, we had a diverse selection of representation at our table, so we came up with a few different points that has already been discussed, and I don't want to go back over cover ground. Um, one of the points that we discussed is challenging, um, or channeling a sense of community, a sense of identity, belonging, through a positive manner rather than a negative. And what we meant by that was that we often see the sense of community coming out when there's a funeral in an area or if somebody is sick, and that's when really a community comes together. But if we could channel that sense of community through a positivity, um, that would be great. Just touching on uh, table three, they mentioned about a focal point. We spoke about that as well. And, you know, historically that was maybe the pub or the church. And, you know, they still exist to an extent, but certain organisations, I suppose, have are, are there historically, are there today, such as maybe a DJ, for example. Um, we spoke about different schemes that are very um, useful and good in rural areas, such as befriending schemes, um, community call. But there is challenges to these, such as you know the GDPR regulations that are now in place, guard of vetting. Probably a key characteristic of a sustainable rural community is transport. And, you know, Local Link are doing a very good service nationally. And, you know, what came up at our table as well, that not only do they provide transport for locals, but they also provide transport for third-level students, okay, to transfer them from home to um, third-level college. Employment has come up on a number of um, tables already. And, you know, even speaking from my own perspective, you know, I live in rural Ireland and I travel to a city on a daily basis and I have no problem with that. But what's important for me in the rural area is, is childcare, is um, housing. Okay, these are all important to me, but I am willing to, tra to travel. And I think, you know, a lot of young people who are living in rural Ireland are willing to travel. And, you know, when it comes to housing, we do have to think about planning laws and local planning laws and how they affect housing in rural Ireland. Um, we also spoke about a flexible working um, conditions. You know, we also spoke about hot desks, and I think they've been mentioned um, already. Um, 
probably one of the issues that garnered a lot of discussion at our table, and it hasn't been mentioned already, is safety. And safety is very important for, for young and old within communities. And I suppose what's come out is that, you know, communities have community alert groups and so on, but what we found is that it's harder to get younger people onto these groups and how to encourage that um, is important. Um, and I suppose that we also spoke about, you know, the local guards, you know, historically the local guard, everybody knew who they were and maybe we've lost that over the last number of years. But from discussion, it looks like that, that there's more resources being put into that now and that is coming back into communities. One last point that our group spoke about is that people want to be involved in decision making in their local communities and how to get people involved and, you know, trying to promote dialogue and I suppose you need leaders to drive that dialogue and that um, has come out to our groups. Um, that's pretty much it, so I'll just pass you on now. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I think, again, some similar points, but maybe with a bit of a twist in some of them. So I suppose initially maybe just looking at that definition as to what is a rural, what's rural Ireland and does it really differ from urban Ireland? And I think we concluded they don't actually differ. Uh, you can live in urban Ireland and you can have similar scenarios that you would have in rural Ireland. So maybe we need to look at that uh, at some level and perhaps then to realise that there is a difference when it comes to supporting the different regions. So the criteria used to support an urban community uh, in terms of funding, if we want to bring it down to that, cannot be the same criteria as being used for rural communities, and yet quite often they are. So maybe to give consideration to that in terms of vibrancy and the characteristics. Again, going back to, I suppose, the fact that we thought, yes, you do need to have economy and you need to have the environmental and the social and the in and industry, but from our perspective was the balance. So we very much saw that as a shared balance and at the centre was society. So, you know, you can have a very strong economic environment, but no, no sense of community or, or social aspects to it, and you can have vice versa. So for us, it was critical that in rural Ireland that we would have a balance of that. Uh, we also looked at the notion of that shared space, so that shared space would be just would be both physical and inclusive, again across disciplines, across different sectors, and other areas have been mentioned from an industry perspective, hubs, etc. But also maybe the, the local libraries, uh, they were seen to be very active and very inclusive, uh, and also an information sharing point. Other characteristics we thought about was that uh, it's important for vibrancy and sustainability that there is a, a strategic action plan or um, you know, local action plans, local communities um, should have these uh, with a vision. But I suppose before that, it's the fact that that, that strategy has to be driven by all. Um, so it's, it's top down and bottom up. It's neither one nor the other. It's, it's an inclusive approach again. And that clarity of vision we felt is supported by leadership leaders, right? And those leaders are typically, from our perspective, we kind of, the twist on that was the... Um, the seamless integration of the PPP model, public-private partnership models, whereby you have the leaders within those different aspects, whether it's in the public environment or in the private environment or in the, um, the industry or the educational environment. But by bringing the leadership from the different strands together, you can have uh, a very vibrant and sustainable rural community. And I guess that really was our, our aspect of contribution from that That's perspective. Really Thanks, Brida. Can I open it to the floor if there were any other uh, comments or discussion points from the other tables in relation to this first question? 
Just one point, and I'm sure it's been picked up or implied in some of the comments already made, but from this table there was a strong sense that a vibrant community was one that was resilient and sort of would never say die and sort of keep on going. Yeah, thanks. Just two quick points. Um, one of them is that there is always a conflicting policies in, in, in government in terms of what we're trying to achieve. Um, one of them sometimes is to do the best thing, like kind uh, vetting and things like that, but it actually inhibits a lot of the action that has to take place, and sometimes we're putting too many restrictions in. Planning is another one. <coughs> we have to meet climate change needs, and we have to look at how we actually organise our society. The second thing is this thing of... Uh, um, inside conflicting is this thing of finance, making everything self-financing. Um, what, what's the difference? You're trying to make uh, state companies profitable, but at the same time then forcing away the social cohesion that's necessary inside uh, local communities. And that actually has an impact on health costs mm -hmm. and a whole range of other costs. So you're transferring costs from one area to another. Yeah, just I was wondering whether there was a marine input here because the we've heard a lot about agriculture but not about marine a marine is very important in terms of rural correct while there doesn't appear to be a marine uh, person in the room we have had the marine sector at the two other conversations and we will be engaging with those who weren't able to make it today so in terms of the invitees and those who've expressed an interest that will ensure that we're engaging with them and that their thoughts are also incorporated into our summary document very fair point. Um, and I suppose Inland Fisheries Ireland would be all about um, reaching the rural areas and supporting them to develop. Um, and the big thing for us is that everybody really would need to understand um, what the rivers and lakes mean to their rural communities and appreciate them and make sure that work isn't done in them that doesn't need to be done and that any developments are you know, evidence-based and can support um, biodiversity and sustainability into the future. And I think they're, they're in trend transpires the balance that needs to be equated because from the blue economy perspective while economically it may be quite a sound plan it also needs to be tested in terms of sustainable environments for future generations as well so it's a balancing act but particularly for those in agri and marine hello um eleanor kent um i should probably say that i am a member of the southeast um fisheries local action group so i sit on that board um, I just want to continue talking about the rivers, that when we talk about a community, it can vary in size depending on what we're talking about. And when it's river, it can be the whole river catchment. Mm. And there is merit in all of the communities around the river working together in the river catchment. So we're sometimes talking about small physical communities in small geographies and sometimes communities of interest. Thank you very much on question one. I'll, I'll summarise, well, I'll attempt to, but um, we will also, as we say, have the podcast where all of your individual feedback is, is within the podcast and we'll also have the report in context. But if we can move on to question two. Which policy actions need to be taken to ensure that rural communities are resilient, vibrant and inclusive and better equipped for the challenges of the future? If we start with table six. Hi there, hello, it's uh, Dr. Keira healy Mutson, and we had a really vibrant conversation. We've come up with nine policy actions, so I'm just going to read them out to you um, to change the world. So um, the first is investment in human and funding resources for transport communication uh, to ensure villages are linked up. 
The second is support for community leaders, that they are all facilitated to engage with other leaders so that they become aware of events taking place in other local villages, um, and they're all informed of that. Uh, the third policy action is that all government policies from all government bodies are rural-proofed, um, so that with each policy that's developed, that, um, that we consider what the impact that policy will have on the rural environment or economy. Um, the fourth policy is in relation to education, so there's three elements in this. The first is to consider making eco-literacy um, a compulsory part of primary and second level education um, so that children from both uh, urban and rural environments have that literacy, that understanding the language of nature and by proxy the language of agriculture and food awareness, that that's a core component in the curriculum right from the beginning of primary level education. Also. While there is a lot of civic engagement projects that take place in education, none of these are fully accessible. So we talked about making that an accessible component in the curriculum. So children from a young age right through to second level learn to think altruistically and think about social engagement. Um, also, a final part of education is to think for universities to, and ITs to have long-term investment in off-campus projects where students are engaged with rural communities in meaningful projects. So there's some really good models internationally. There's an architecture model in rural studios in uh, America. Um, it's part of University of Auburn, based in Alabama. There's Shurkin Island, where there's a degree program that takes place down there with DIT. So there's some examples uh, that exist. So our fifth policy action is in relation to improving digital access and in highlighting micro-enterprises. And that connects to the, the sixth one, which is in relation to enterprise grant aid in smaller communities. And there's some really good examples of, um, of y'all, where there's, was it 50? Is it 50 small? Yes, 50 small um, uh, companies have been set up there. Um, and this is especially important in light of Brexit to think about investing in those um, enterprise grant aid and for them to be in, located in smaller communities. Uh, our seventh policy is related to maintaining current investment in the Healthy Ireland projects and other projects that promote well-being, which is especially important in rural Ireland. Um, our eighth policy is around security. I know somebody mentioned that already. So thinking about having strong community police and improving uh, rural security. And finally, um, it's in relation to a policy action for larger, possibly international companies coming to uh, smaller rural or towns or villages that they have, um, they have to, by policy, have a social responsibility. And that perhaps there could be a role within that company, possibly a, a local person employed in that role, um, uh, in order to give that kind of feedback and, um, and to advise that company how best that social responsibility could be executed. And that's our nine policies. Thank that's you. great. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to uh, summarise, I suppose, what we've spoken about for question two here at table seven. And it was a, a very rich conversation, so um, I hope I do it justice. Um, to start with, and I think it echoes what has been said there at table six, we spoke about the need for coherence at interdepartmental level. 
So while a lot of the activities that we looked at as the characteristics of rural community were, were bottom-up, there's also a top-down impact. And that coherence between government departments is not always evident, is a nice way to put it, I think. Um, we talked about the kind of the silo effect. Uh, there being, for instance, a transport infrastructure that is the school bus infrastructure, the local link infrastructure, and then a HSE infrastructure, and none of them talk to each other. Now, while we talked about the idea of coherence at interdepartmental level, it was also stressed that there would need to be a flexibility at local level because, you know, not all rural communities are the same and one can't assume that one size fits all. We also spoke about broadband, and I think the message was implement the plan. Um, but it was also pointed out that uh, you know technology is is kind of overtaking maybe some of the plans that are being laid, and and that's something that is a huge issue for the the quality of life, the quality of employment, the quality of connectivity at a local level. So that's key. Um, we also spoke about plans such as, for instance, the rural development plan, which is a, a whole-of-government approach, and I, and I just have to say this because it's wonderful alliteration. It was mentioned as a potpourri of previously made political promises. How about that? Um, but in terms of the Rural Development Plan, it's, it's important to look also at a national volunteering strategy. It's important to look at a social enterprise um, solution. So, so there's a lot of uh, various, I suppose, Im initiatives that would implement on rural development and uh, need to be considered, and I think what was mentioned at Table 6 was made rural-proof, so that needs to be considered. Now, at, at, in terms of the environment, and that was a big issue at our table, um, there was also talk of an integrated land-use strategy. And really what was being talked about was, while we understand that a significant portion of land is in, is in private ownership, there was talk about a national strategy to match the land use to basically the optimum strengths of the land and, and organise systems of rewards and incentives to make sure that that happened. Um, and I think that's also connected to ensuring diversity of use and so on. Um, there was also talk about farmers responding to policy and that, again, in terms of the, the diversity as it exists in rural communities, there can be a big difference between large uh, farm enterprises and small farm enterprises and the things that benefit each are not always the same. So, so that kind of sensitivity. Um, in terms of the, the land strategy, we also spoke about a, an optimum marine and aquaculture strategy with inland fisheries and so on. And in that context, there was a conversation about a policy mechanisms that would return some revenue streams to local communities. So revenue streams that were generated by tourism, by wind farms or other things locally, returned not just to individuals, but in some sense to, to local communities. And there was also a conversation in particular focus on volunteering, social enterprise and so on, that centered on reducing the burden of regulation. While we understand governance and good governance requirements, uh, we, we also proposed that maybe that governance should be proportionate and that, you know, while we need to be sensitive to, to uh, safety measures and so on, that reducing the burden of regulation, because it was felt that the burden of regulation was actually uh, working against volunteering and, and stripping out maybe the number of people who are willing to, to be part of those community enterprises. Um, we're talking about support, supporting communities to navigate the forest or, or the, 
the difficult um, landscape of the initiatives and the programmes as they're developed. So even when you spoke earlier, Felicity, about all the different plans and the initiatives, and the different things, it was recognised that there is actually um, a number of opportunities and incentives, but sometimes they're just a step too far away from that local group that's doing something. And some means of navigating that landscape for that local group was mentioned. Now, also to remember that there are some really good examples. And there was talk at this table about transferability of learning. We had a really good example, for instance, of a PPN funding handbook, um, which was shown to us, which was to help people to navigate that. As a handbook, it was pointed out that it goes out of date very quickly, but it is an online initiative that's available. There was also another community, I think it was in Clare, um, that offered an opportunity of converting that um, maybe rural, national rural development plan into a local rural development strategy that incorporated all of the various players. So taking that ownership at a local level or, or um, let's say, interpreting those policy initiatives as they come down to a local level. We also had a conversation around local policing, safety, post offices, and means re really meaningful and impactful means of sharing those resources at, at a local level. So I, I think that's what we came up with. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, we, again, had a great discussion, and we had members from local community groups, from national bodies, from the department and local authorities. Um, so similar to points raised in um, Table 7, we said there's a myriad of opportunities available to um, community groups, but many of them don't know where to go. So there's a real opportunity to signpost um, opportunities and to coordinate the supports amongst agencies. Um, the idea was mooted in the past of a one-stop shop for um, community groups to know where they could go for support. And not every community group is at the same level. And we identified that some community groups are new to the funding applications, whereas others are much more experienced and canny about it. And therefore, they can get the funding much better than um, newer. So we thought about the idea of networking community groups similar to your idea, and also maybe mentoring where experienced community groups from geographically you know they're not in the same, they're not competing for the same funding would help others to get funding and there's a shared experience about that we spoke about um, rural proofing economic policy and all policies and that's been said and well um, argued by the other tables but a key thing that we thought um, is that the metrics for success of community groups can't be measured in widgets or numbers, that there's a need for qualitative uh, metrics. So the idea of having case studies and positive case studies, so we're redefining the success metrics. And to this end, um, one of our um, table members has written a brilliant book called The Enterprising Community. Dr. Senan Cook um, is from um, Dunhill, Fenner, Boatstrand and Anstown Community Group. But his case study 21, um, wonderful initiatives, community-based initiatives. And it's a starting point for the case studies. And once we start um, talking about real-life people, it becomes much more real and the policy is um, enlivened. 
Again, like what the other table said, we need to coordinate the supports across the departments that people are talking to each other. And there was initiatives in the past by FOSS community enterprise programmes where they worked with communities and planned on a two or five year cycle and that might need to happen again so that communities know and plan for funding in the future. Um, we welcomed initiatives by um, the department, uh, the Action Plan for Rural and Community Development. There's a new social enterprise policy going to be made um, or published within the next um, two months. And there's a volunteering policy and we think that these are welcome initiatives. And finally, just a thought by the group, we should trust the people, um, trust communities and we should relax the KPIs. Right, thanks very much. A um, number of tables must be inspiring on some of what we're talking about. Um, One of the things that we started on it was dereliction. We said mm -hmm. it is a lot of rural areas have huge amounts of dereliction, um, and this becomes very difficult to fix. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the suggestion is that we actually start looking at how we actually redevelop towns, not just add new pieces on, but actually fix the bits that are there. But at the same time, some of the people who are actually trying to do this are faced with huge blockages all the time. And some of those blockages have to be looked at and addressed. I mean, how we deal with heritage um, towns and architectural, architectural heritage um, and sometimes preventing us doing something and making them sit there vacant for long periods of time. Um, the other part on this one was that we should focus a lot of that development on towns and villages and just in, in try and make that much more coherent. We looked at the issue of the Gwaeltocht area as well. Okay? Um, this is about kind of cultural cohesion, part of what our real heritage is in terms of the language and protection of the language in certain areas. But to do that, you know, you actually have to be vibrant. Um, and a lot of the Gwaeltocht communities are very small. Um, so kind of the, the role of actually direct social centres that brings people together, really critically important. But so too is the role of the cooperative movement. And, and we've not developed the cooperative movement as well as probably we should have. Maybe we were much better at that 30, 40 years ago than we are now. And I think um, some examples maybe from Spain and Italy might be worthwhile looking at that one. Um, thing that came out of this as well, um, and it, it works out, a lot of areas that are very vibrant have very, very strong enterprise and community centres. Mm. Those that don't struggle. So there is a real sense of actually kind of putting that type of infrastructure in place um, so you can have some sense of employment, uh, employability, and a capacity to bring people back who've actually been educated and have something to bring, um, either whether it be summer work and then long-term kind of uh, reintegrating back. Key thing that we got was, if you're looking at rural Ireland and rural villages, it's all about people, okay? But yet, we've spent very little time building up the capacity of areas. There are a number of towns who the capacity is really strong and they're very, very vibrant. Other areas, um, the capacity is not as strong and we don't invest in actually developing community leadership mm -hmm. um, and, and, and engaging people with the skill sets necessary to, um, to bring that through. One other thing is the use of third level colleges, the Institutes of Technology, things like TU Dublin, uh, we're all told how many hours we have to lecture and we're supposed to engage in communities, but a lot of the time the hours become more important and I think the colleges actually have to look at a role that they have to play in the communities and communities have to look to what 
third level colleges have a capacity to deliver as well but they have a, a real sense of expertise that can be shared um, and, and also part of a training program that not necessarily always have to be academic and, and everything else that goes with that one. Um, aging population, large chunks of rural Ireland are, have a, a very different dynamic in terms of their demographic structure and there is a real sense that we actually have to look at aging population and what happens beyond kind of that cohort of population. Investment in services, I think, is critical. Um, it's what keeps people in areas. And if we, if we keep taking services out, and it's, a, again, a point that we made in the first section, was that if we're looking at just financial sustainability of certain services, then actually they're going to take them out of communities and there will be a further cost with dereliction and, and health and everything else. And, and a final point is that if you look at rural Ireland in the context of what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago and look at it now, then you have a problem looking forward into the future. You actually have to look at where it will be in 25 years because you actually have to put the services in now to actually address what you require instead of constantly backfilling. Because mm. it, it, it's a, I, know, I know your starting point was about 40 something percent of the population in rural Ireland, but when we joined the European Union, something near 80% of the um, income of this um, kind of area, 50% of the state were employed in agriculture. We're down to 10% now. France are down to 2 or 3%, and they are at a similar back point. Things are changing, mm. so we actually have to re-image what rural Ireland will be. Yeah. So we started with the, um, the comment that there is an assumption sometimes that rural communities don't have quite the same issues as urban communities. And I know there are differences, but they do share many of the problems. They just don't have the same services. So we focus on that for a little bit. And there was a comment that really more outreach services are needed to rural communities, that existing organisations are well-placed and would be very happy to provide those. But of course, they need to be properly funded. We also made the point, and I know this has already been made, that the right level of service is needed depending on the size of the community and their particular needs. So again, it's reiterating this point that one size does not fit all, and it's a matter of what is right for that particular community. Um, one thing we kept coming back to was this notion of uh, good practice examples and being able to promote what we're calling here uh, rural beacons of activity. So where things have worked in other rural communities, to make sure that that message gets out there to everyone, so that those experiences, uh, the successes as well as the mistakes can be learned from. But to put some active and structured promotion around those things, because it's excellent learning for other communities. We talked a little bit about needing to move away from the expectation that perhaps government often has, uh, that volunteers will just do a lot of this work. Mm. Um, that really isn't a sustainable model. So there is investment needed um, in, in employed roles to help the volunteers, and especially to help with government, uh, sorry, governance issues. Um, we also talked about research. I mean, it would be surprising if we didn't, given the academics in the room. But um, a lot of research tends to be ignored. So we're saying use the research, have um, you know, policy that is actually informed by research. It is there. We also talked about infrastructure, as I'm sure everyone did. Um, but moving away from the big ticket items, the, the transport, the broadband, 
Something as simple as ensuring that villages have uh, adequate water supply, uh, adequate sewage facilities, if this growth is to be accommodated in the future. And finally, um, we talked simply in terms of education. If a school is needed in the community, put the school in the community. Get beyond thinking about just the cost, because all of the other benefits that will come from that, not just the employment, but the connectivity and sustainability that could come from putting a school in a community is vitally important. Okay, thank you. Can I open it to the floor if there are any additional comments in relation to this question? Um, it was mentioned a few times about sharing of information and between services and government departments. Um, and just to give, uh, come up with some sort of solution, um, it was mentioned at our table that an event took place in Dublin. It was a speed networking event. So basically the, all the services came together and they sat down and they spoke to each other. And, you know, maybe it's something that could be used um, on a national basis. Just one other thing it was mentioned about third-level institutions. And from my own background, you know, there's a real move in third-level to make students' assessments a lot more practical and where we actually bring in um, companies and students do their assignments on what we call live cases, so with companies, but there's an opportunity there for students to use rural communities as a live case, you know, and students have great ideas, they're creative, um, you know, so it's definitely an opportunity um, that something can be used. Um, one last point was mentioned was around the whole f um, funding and you know the difficulties that can be around that um, it was mentioned at our table that if essentially a process could be developed where the vetting took place before a funding was applied for so that they don't have to go through that um, while after applying for the funding and also if a national insurance policy could be put in place for directors who are applying for funding it just makes it easier for them okay thank you you know taking on board uh, the earlier discussion that um, communities were built around work and working and activities that there would be policy would be needed to uh, incentivize investment in infrastructure um, be something like co-working spaces based in rural areas uh, so there would be incentives to create them, um, but also to, to, to operate them and to um, use them. So you'd be incentivizing businesses, businesses to migrate from urban areas to rural areas. Um, so you wouldn't just create uh, spaces that would not be used, but that they would be used. I'm talking about you know, hot desk spaces, fit for purpose, etc. Um, but it would be done... Uh, in, in a holistic approach that integrated the community, which might mean you know access to shops, access to coffee, access to parking, and access to other other things in the community, um, and then the, then with, to develop activities around sports and tourism, um, but that there will be some sort of coaching support available to communities how to set them up. This might come out of prior research done, but how how to um, activate activities and a community spirit. Uh, the insurance came up as a big issue as well, that uh, it's very difficult for um, existing infrastructure like schools to be opened up and made available to the broader community uh, because of insurance concerns and that maybe the state may need to underwrite some of those insurance risks to um, provide access to existing infrastructure. 
Um, we also felt that th these initiatives would be underpinned by, by a couple of, of things like a spirit of partnership in communities and um, intergenerational communications. And the spirit of partnership had to do with reducing bureaucracy, increasing transparency as to where the money was. And, and it was a partnership between government and communities to say that, you know, this was for the good of everybody and to make it easier for people to identify the source of funding and the source of supports, and then to facilitate the process of applying and making applications uh, for, uh, for funding and the governance around the, 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 the use of it. And then from an intergenerational perspective, to utilize the diversity of skills available across uh, um, in a community, but across age groups. Thank you. At this station, at this table, there was a bit of discussion around uh, rural development policy. Um, probably since the foundation of the state, rural development policy has fundamentally been based on the needs of agriculture. And there probably needs to be a discussion around the needs of a rural community as distinct from just the needs of the agricultural uh, sector at this stage. With the changes in recent years with the industrialisation of farming in that, um, the needs of the wider community also needs to be taken into account. And this probably needs to, be, to have a, a definition or a clear definition between the roles of the Department of Agriculture and the roles of the Department of Rural and Community Development, where the, role, the roles of rural and community development sets the policy for wider rural community, which is distinct from the needs of an industrial agricultural sector. And I think if that doesn't happen, the request of all the other policy changes around the room would be just a continuation of a potpourri of funds every five years. Uh, we talked about the CEDRA engagement here, which was excellent. It's been very hard for the department to implement CEDRA because they're trumped by programs like their policies like Harvest 2025. So there needs to be a clear delineation between the roles of the two departments, with the Department of Rural and Community Development not being led or trumped by or preempted by the Department of Agriculture. Thank you. I know you're conscious of time, but I suppose just very quickly pulling on that point again, I guess, of integration of national policies to consider one. Um, we also brought up the point, I guess, as to what's looking looking at what's working well at the minute. So there are policies such as local action plans, Chamber Alliance, Healthy Ireland, social prescribing, EU, EU rural policy and libraries, they're working well. We also suggest that future action should consider at least uh, somewhere between 20 to 40 percent of private inclusion in policy making because of the fact that I guess they've got the experience of having to, to deliver previously and have that, that exper expertise behind them. Going on to Colette's point, some applied research, maybe looking at developing um, a well-being index for the community, the rural areas, and perhaps an impact index. And just finally, I guess, to look at the fact of the expert versus the specialist, whereby we felt the specialists were people on the ground who've got the local knowledge and to harvest that social capital and to link it in with the expert. And to do that, perhaps organise a, a national, regional, um, rural community forum, bringing different communities together. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as a farmer uh, and a farmer representative, I think, firstly, we need to be careful not to imply that farming is in wind-down mode because it very definitely isn't. And I know that wasn't what was being implied, but, you know, the idea that there are now um, significantly less of the population involved in agriculture than was the case 50 years ago may be true. But basically the same land mass is being farmed. Uh, so for the farm families that are farming that, it's crucially important. 
and the uh, money that they have to spend is spent pretty much in those rural communities uh, where they live. And from that point of view, and I think it ties into a message that came earlier in the morning where we see that here in Ireland we actually have significantly more people living in rural Ireland than is, is, is the case in Europe. Mm. Um, a large part of the reason for that would be that uh, the common agricultural policy has been cleverly used here in Ireland to support farm families. Yes, farm sizes are becoming larger, but at a very slow rate much slower than, than is the case in Europe generally. So one of the quick points I wanted to make was that the common agricultural policy, and I know it's a macro, macro issue, needs to be supported. It brings almost 1.7 billion euros into rural Ireland, into rural communities every year. It's under threat from, from any number of sources. And, and I think that's a central key issue for, for rural Ireland and, and for the financing of rural Ireland, because that money is spent locally. And the second one on a macro issue as well, and a national policy issue, Climate change is now all the rage and, and people are, are getting very exercised and we will see very key policy decisions um, being arrived at. Um, we need to ensure that, that our climate change policy provides opportunities for rural communities and for the farming communities to work together. We see these opportunities in, being provided uh, to communities, rural communities and farmers in other countries so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It would be a shame if we didn't uh, offer our farmers and our rural communities uh, the option, the same option. I follow on from the previous speaker because the previous speaker mentioned that the number of farm families may be in decline. It is definitely and has been in decline. Previous tables said that 20 years ago there was about 18% of the rural population was farming. It's now well below 10%. But he also mentioned that there would be, that in France it's 3%. Policy should not follow the figures. Mm. We should be looking at a policy that gives us a vision for a vibrant and healthy uh, rural community. And we need farming as part of that. But certainly we cannot go with the notion of a small number of people basically back to the notion of owning huge tracts of land and nobody else in it. Uh, so I challenge that. And secondly, I think that we need the environmental and, and ecological crisis that is facing the world will define rural development mm -hmm. policy in a number of years. We don't have to be working out policies unless we do something serious in terms of issues like climate change and, and, and our rivers and our oceans and the land and how we have degraded the land, you know, in a sense as well. And I think that's very, very serious and that needs to be included. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for all of the contributions. I have the rather interesting task of trying to summarise this in about three minutes, but remember that um, the podcast in its entirety is available. If we go to the first question in terms of characteristics, really what was given to us by the various contributions was to paint a picture of what that characteristic or what that community looks like, notwithstanding the caveat that not all rural communities are the same. There was a view that the social network and economic network should be complementary bedfellows, that if one is placed above the other, you have a dangerous situation occurring. The infrastructure of leaders in both social communities and economic communities need equal help and encouragement. There was mention of mentoring, for example, in order to help those communities that are new to community leadership and community networks and that they can uh, draw from the experiences of more experienced community leaders. The conscious 
richness of community space and a community center or a hub became very clear. And what was interesting is that we've shifted from what were traditional hubs of community meeting places into the new and future social hubs, such as schools, pitches, community halls, coffee shops, libraries, and even river catchment areas that can feel an affiliation that this is my community because I live on the same river as, as my, my fellow men and women in my community. Of interest there was it was raised by a number of tables the challenges of insurance in terms of using these hubs. And it is something that has been highlighted in some of the other conversations as well. Very much came through in all tables was a sense of place and the need for involvement from the ground in decision making at national level. There was awareness of empty houses and that something needs to be done in relation to rejuvenation of these homes and often businesses, not only in the wider country area, but in our towns and villages across the country. We have in the future the possibility and the potential of co-working, hot desks as another hub, not only as an economic but also as a social space. Awareness of childcare and education in terms of are we drawing our young people away from our rural communities unnecessarily for third level education in particular? Is there capacity for our young people to be in both locations, not necessarily being gone from their own community over a four year period? There was a view on resilience in terms of connecting people and the need for intergenerational diversity. We made an attempt at that here today and we again thank you for taking your time to come here. There was the last point in this context was, well, what's the definition of rural? And how do we have that shared balance in terms of that definition? I may consider myself deeply rural and you may not consider yourself rural at all. We may be a mile apart. So there is a mixed economy there as well and an appreciation of how embedded we are based on the conversations that were had today, how embedded we are in that rural community. Some spaces are, as Eugene highlighted, ghost towns in the daytime. Who are the individuals and community leaders that can alleviate that potential so that that resilience is put in place? It goes to the second question then in terms of policy actions that need to be taken. It was really uh, significant work done at each table. So we do have the policy actions here. What I'm highlighting is what came across in all of the commentary from all of the tables that was repeated quite a bit as well. It is not that we're leaving anything off the page. There is a need for investment in human transport and communication infrastructures, but the community leader links need to be strengthened. Again, we go back to the suggestion of a mentor scheme, but also that these individuals could meet at a, a regional or national basis. You mentioned speed dating for uh, community uh, leaders in context. It is also a means of bringing those schemes that may not be aware at, at local level, those schemes to the local communities in a more succinct and uh, cohesive manner. There was a strong view from all of the tables that government policies should be uh, rural-proofed and that education has a part to play in terms of the embeddedness of our understandability of sustainability and vibrancy. In this was eco-literacy at first and second level and the sense that civic engagement should be accessible in schools across the country. 
It was reinforced at a number of tables that we have a responsibility relating to climate change, but that this could act as a catalyst in terms of both the spirit of partnership and as a tool of economy, including CAP. In the context of digital access, there's an awareness that uh, high-speed broadband is being worked on, but the full implementation of this has had its challenges. It was raised by a number of individuals in context. The idea of grant aid and the vetting of individuals' accessibility to grant aid before application, and again, the mentor scheme in context would give the opportunity for these individuals to secure some of what they need. There was a request or a sense that we maintain in and invest in healthy Ireland and consider well-being in terms of our wider community. It was suggested that perhaps an index in research terms may help with this regard. Security was raised as a challenge, a challenge of isolation, but also a challenge of inclusion. And that the community police have a large part to play in relating to this as we go further. Multinational corporations that are in small communities, there should be consideration not only of their economic contribution, but also their corporate social responsibility. And there were a number of you that suggested that uh, the revenue streams that come from economic entities could be at least a proportion of incorporated into the community for common good, i.e. a return process. We need to reduce the burden of regulation and governance and to try and navigate the link to this landscape of support structures and funding initiatives. It was raised on a number of occasions that in the government context, there is need for more coherence between interpart or at interdepartmental level. One of the examples was the um, links with the agricultural department and other departments, but also the impact of the silo effect in terms of support services at regional and rural level, whether that be health linked to school, linked to transport or others. Lastly, I hope, lastly in the context of um, social enterprise. It is interesting in, in, in terms of the conversation as it evolved around the idea of volunteers and that it was anticipated that volunteers would sit in that space ad infinitum. The cooperative movements may actually sit under the mantle of social enterprise now, but that these, in, these entities can help with the integration of several of the points made at policy level. We're looking to redefine the success measures and matrices in action, and the spirit of partnership can embed there, as can the case studies that can become beacons of success and a promotion of a vibrant and, rural, and sustainable rural community. Many of you spoke of policy as a vision rather than following the figures. Particularly in the context of farming, it is to appreciate the differences in farm size. There are large farms, there are also small farms and the needs of each is different, not only in terms of the economic needs of their deliverables, but the individuals who farm these entities. Lastly, research can be used as a catalyst, so you're putting it to us in the higher education systems, but we are willing to engage in this. The idea of social enterprise as a hub and such things as case studies or embedding students, whether at second or third level, in active community projects in their own rural environments may very well help us to embed some of the criteria we've looked for in encouraging the youth back into our areas. 
And I leave you with this. A number of you spoke of the aging population, but I know that there is an opportunity there, that there is the context of an aging population who are capable of contributing, particularly in voluntary and social enterprise, that you have an untapped resource there in the context of several of the people in the room. So I'll leave you to find each other uh, at lunch. I think that's it in summary. Again, everything will be captured in the report. Thank you very much for all of your inputs and for your engagement. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Royal Irish Academy. To learn more about Rural Conversations, visit the Academy's website at ria.ie.